0: new series that we're calling uh, our I, My Next Right Step. It's a series on autonomy. And what we said, we want to talk about autonomy for a couple of weeks. Uh, and because autonomy defined is basically like self-government. I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it or whatever. And who doesn't want to be in control of things, right? We called it My Next Right Step because for those of us, uh, for many of us, that's where we feel the most concentrated form of autonomy is I'm kind of lost. I'm kind of wondering where, what my next step is. I need to figure out for me what my next right step is. I need to kind of keep progressing, keep moving. It's not enough to be static or whatever. I need to keep going in some direction. Uh, and right now, uh, this idea of this feeling or this longing for autonomy or for control is probably more tangible than it is like on a usual basis. Right now, um, you're watching this at home because you were told when and where and whatever. <laughs> you're told, right now, we're being told where we can and can't eat, uh, where, we are, uh, where we can and can't wear, and all of those types of things. To be fair, though, to be, as, we, as much as we can be bitter about that kind of stuff, you've never been able to do anything you wanted to do, right? I mean, like, there's laws and things that are government. So, like, even though we feel like our, our autonomy is being questioned right now, um, we also feel like we can understand, like we've, we've always had some sort of civil boundaries in place. In fact, what we said last week was this. We live with an inner sense of being able to say, or like the, the, spa- the space that we want to in- inhabit is a place where we can be who we want to be, where we can, uh, I can do what I want when I want to do it with who I want to do it. And we add one little caveat because we live in a civil government and we want to be able to be nice to our neighbors where we say, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Right this only involves me, I get to make my own choice, my own thing, or whatever, so I want to do what I want when I want with who I want to do it, as long as it doesn 't hurt anybody else and What I said last week is it 's kind of a dangerous spot to be in you live like this, you do this too often eventually you 're going to need a lawyer or an attorney right This is expensive it 's very exclusive it 's only for people with lots of money uh, and in the end, it does end up being self inflictive um, eventually you 're going to do something that hurts somebody else, and eventually that somebody else is actually us, and we we live so desperate for autonomy that we make choices that are self-inflicting in this way. And we we, um, are ch- we were challenged, or hopefully in, in our spot or our, our uh, obsession with autonomy, we were kind of hopefully attached with it, like this this caveat of, but be careful. You should be careful in that kind of mindset. If we play this out to its total fruition, what happens with this? Because, and what, the reason why we should be careful is because of an age-old wisdom insight that Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament prophets, talked about when he just observed Jeremiah. He's a, a prophet who's observing how blindsided people can get to be when they want to things the way that they want to do them. They want to do things the way that they want to do them, and, and aren't listening, and aren't aware, and, and don't understand the limited perspective. He said, Oh, the heart is so deceitful above all else who can trust it, right? We've seen this. Like, we know it within ourselves. We've been in these spots where we wanted something so badly and we want to operate out of our autonomy. We We wanted something in our own unique way so much. That we refused to listen to counsel of others we we you know convinced ourselves that this was what we feel like was in our our rights to be able to do or whatever um and uh and we we said we thought he was the one or she was the one right and 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 we fooled ourselves we delude ourselves because our heart is deceitful above all else we should really probably attempt to question it, which is a difficult predicament to be in because most of our cultural heroes operate with a high level or a an appearance of a high level of autonomy. When we see people who we admire and we respect, right they, in the movies or whatever, they've always kind of operated very autonomous. It's always been them. They got here. They did this. They get to do what they want to do. Um, uh, they're the ones in in with the power, and we we see that, and we like that's kind of what I want to be in this way, and and we think about scenarios like that. We'd be like, man, that's what I want. And then what happens sometimes is those people go through some sort of a moral failure, or they go through a loss, like uh, successive losses in a row, or or all of a sudden they're not winning anymore, or they gave it up, or we see people, or we observe them, and all of a sudden they were at the peak of their powers, and then now five years later or whatever, it's like we don't even know who they are. And we think, yeah, but that that was just a bad decision for them. Once Like, I I get it. Once I call my own shots, I'll make all the right shots. That's what we've convinced ourselves to say. We admire autonomous living with other people. And we think, yes, there is a downside to that. They deceive themselves. But don't worry, I won't deceive myself. Don't worry, I'm in good hands. Uh, I'm I'm okay. So when we launched, let's just bring it home for a little bit for me personally. When we launched this church 10 years ago, uh, one of the compelling arguments for starting fresh versus taking something over because that was definitely an option. I could have, you know, my wife and I could have moved home. It would have been a lot easier to find a church with an aging pastor who wanted to go do something different with his life, right? Uh, Or her life or whatever. And all of a sudden I I take something over and then all of a sudden I probably have a paid off building to some degree. There's probably 40 or 50 people. I am not like any of them, but I would, there would be about 40 to 50 people in this place. I would, I would just be able to come in, do like a talk or whatever, and then kind of get on my merry way and, and probably have a lot of things in favor. There's a lot of pros on that side of things. But we like the idea about being able to do what we felt is right without sort of skirting authority. Because I think when we, just personally, when I've seen a lot of churches within denominations, be progressive within their denomination, they're doing things that are kind of like not they're not following the, the, the spirit of the law, the letter of the, the, they're go, obeying the letter of the law, but like they're taking some risks on this. They're skirting authority. They want everybody to know what we're doing, but we just feel like this is right. And so we're making this thing happen or just straight outright rebellion. We wanted to do things and make decisions based on kind of what we felt like was the right spot to be in. So um, we, we said, what if we, when we launch We don't want any denominational ties. There was a lot of reasons to be able to sign up for some sort of church planting program where you get a bunch of money to be able to start, but then you got to like obey their rules. And we're like, I just don't like that. I don't like that feeling. And it's not, and trust me, it's not because I don't like coming under authority, right? Because I know that there's a huge danger. Netflix is full of documentaries on super autonomous religions. They just call them cults, right? That's a super autonomous religion oftentimes turns into uh, is this idea of a cult. So uh, we said... So I I get it. So I understand. I say all that because I I think I understand, and I'm I'm kind of coming at you in the same kind of spot that you're in, of like this gravitational pull towards autonomous sort of living. And even with that, there's a caution for us as we're an autonomous church plant to be able to be like, yes, but how do we keep ourselves from doing everything or having the opportunity to do? everything, which is why we have a board an external board and internal board, all that kind of stuff. But there's got to be some checks and balances in, in this, because as much as we want to go and do our own thing without any sort of recourse to people telling us what to do, you have to be careful who you listen to, and that very much includes you. You have to be careful who you listen to, and that very much includes me, because I know this. I don't have as much perspective on everything as I think that I have. I am making decisions the best that I can. And I think that in the the moment, in the moment, this feels like the right thing to do. And it probably does to my limited perspective. But if you're a parent, you know your kids and as a junior in high school is being like, but mom, I know more than you do, right? I have the perspective. And you wanna tell them, you need to go and listen to Pastor Brent's talk online. And when he said that part about you don't have as much perspective as you think you do, make sure your volume is up and your headphones are on. Because you need to hear that. You don't. And it would be so easy as a parent to see this in the lives of our kids. And what scripture reminds us is it's not just for our kids, although it is especially for our kids, it's also for us. As we go through life, as much as we crave autonomous living, we have to be careful because we do not have as much perspective as we think we do. And last week, we looked at a story of a time when everybody did what they thought was right in their own eyes, and it's in Judges chapter nineteen through chapter twenty-one. I'm not going to rehash it. Really, like, pretty like rated MA. Last week was sort of rated MA. I apologize if you brought your kids. A lot less kids here this week. I noticed that immediately. Smart, smart parents are like, you know what? We're going to wait till the kids' rooms are back open. We're going to do that because I'm not sure I can trust Brent and what he talks about. I get it. If you missed it, I'm building the case for why you should go back and listen to it. But a pretty MA-rated sort of text in Scripture. And I said, in this whole process, everybody was making decisions that they felt were right at the time. That they could probably justify. As gross as it looks like now, Every one of them is going, yeah, but if you look at it from this perspective, it feels like in those moments it was the right thing for us to do, which serves as a warning for anybody who's willing to listen moving forward, which is why I so think that the Israelite group included that in their text, almost as an appendix to that thing, to be like, hey, don't forget the time when everybody did what they thought was right in their own eyes. Be careful with autonomy. Be careful with it which hopefully led some of you to the spot. And I teach in a series, so I I never want to like conclude it all in one thing. I try and draw it out a little bit more. Um, Hopefully you watched it or listened to it or or left here last week or whatever, thinking to yourselves, okay, so so never listen to my conscience. Is that what you're saying? Like don't trust ever my heart? Because like everything else outside of the walls of this church is go with your heart. Like you got to do what your heart's going to do. You got to follow my heart. Like that's the bachelor line, right? So I have to do this. Like, and and this, I know me better than anybody else knows me. And I'm responsible for my own decisions. And if if these um, end up being not great, then I only have myself to blame. So there's like some positives towards this. Not to mention, Brent, by the way, it feels like in teachings of Scripture that God's Spirit, like the Holy Spirit, serves as sort of a conscience. To ourselves, so like when i 'm listening to my conscience i 'm sort of listening to god's spirit, and you're telling me to to not listen, and that 's not definitely not what i'm saying i I definitely think that the biblical writers refer to god's spirit or the Holy Spirit they're speaking to Lord like this higher level of conscience that is a gift that is given to us for our renewal it's just that we're not super we're we're not super good at being able to discern when that 's actually God's spirit and when it's just us getting what we want to do because we're super good deceivers of other people. And sometimes those other people, and you include ourselves, we're especially good at deceiving ourselves. So there's, I say that to say, yes, absolutely. You should listen to your heart, listen to your gut, listen to hopefully God's spirit, God's conscience, the Holy Spirit inside of you. Absolutely. But there is risk involved in that. There's a big butt there that you got to kind of focus on a little bit. I'm telling you to focus on big butts in that way. So maybe, um, okay, so maybe a or the fail safe for this. Okay, Brent, I get it. I understand what you're saying. You're leading me in this direction, but there's all, there's like a tiny little caveat. Fine. Okay. So maybe a fail safe would be this to listen to those people around me. To trust my gut for most of the time, but every once in a while, I'll be like, I don't know, maybe this is just me being selfish. Maybe I should rely on a failsafe, which is to listen to the people around me. And if everybody whose opinion I value is speaking in unison against what I feel in my gut, maybe I'm off on something. And I would say that that is a very generally spiritually mature, self-aware way of doing life. I think that's a very adult way of looking at things. But another big butt, two big butts today. And that's really great. And yes, I think that that's a very a good truism for life or a good axiom for a way of, of, of handling life. But the second big but kind of comes along in this. Should you trust your conscience? Yes, you should listen to your conscience. But you should also you know listen to the advice of trusted counsel. But, and here's the big but, with this. To look at this further, we're going to look at Israel's most popular king today. A story about a guy named David. A story that probably, if you've grown up in church, you're probably familiar with. For sure, even if you're not religious and didn't grow up in church, you know about David. You know about King David. He's the guy with the sling and the stones and Goliath and all of those things. You know that he eventually became the king. And nobody, by the way, the reason that I say he's Israel's most popular king is nobody had a track record like David. Um, from the very beginning when, with the whole anointing by Samuel, he had this like clear divine appointment. It was so clear that this person was supposed to be our king. Who could argue with, with what transpired there? And then in his dealings with Saul that you can read about uh, in in the book of Samuel and Kings and all of that, the way that Saul kind of authority begins to drop and David ascends and how that kind of played out and how he managed himself and the men around him to be able to make those things happen. I mean, the story is like, man, it, you just you, you find yourself liking the the character of David. Everybody like is, there's an affinity towards that, which is why it's a very, very popular name even today. And and he was a military genius. No more, like nobody had more success in terms of expanding into what they quoted as the, the promised land than David. David just made success after success after success. Everything he touched turned into gold. So King David was super popular in this way. And yet the most famous story about him is not one of positivity, but oftentimes. Um, something that we think of almost immediately when we hear that King David grew up in church. It's the story that shows up in Second Samuel uh, chapter 11, verse 2. It says this, One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent somebody uh, to find out about her. We know where this is going, this woman is Bathsheba, we we know this story, he's wandering on the roof of his house, and guys, let's be honest, this probably wasn't the first time David wandered over to that particular side of the roof of the house. My guess would be he'd found that before. That was, and they had outdoor baths at the time. She's probably doing it with what she thought was privacy at the moment. For sure, the palace is probably the tallest building in the area. Um, only the palace would have the access to that sort of a view and perspective that anybody else would have. Um, and so he finds himself taking advantage of this thing, this opportunity, this whatever. And this probably wasn't the first time, ladies. If you ever found. Like, how, what a coincidence that my future husband or boyfriend, like, weirdly parked his car next to mine, or weirdly came by my store, and all of a sudden really started liking the deli restaurant that I worked in, and you think, that's just chance, that's just opportunity. That is not, this guy was strategic, he knew exactly what was in play. He's putting himself in the right position at the right time, and then playing it off as, what dumb luck. There's not dumb luck involved, there's strategy involved in that. How do you think I got my wife? I and mean, this is just, I'm just speaking from personal experience. This was not the first time. I'm just saying, I'm reading into this. I don't have any scriptural background other than just knowing human nature. He'd probably walk this loop several times. Um, he sends somebody to go find her and talk and bring her uh, information or bring him information about her. And it's in this moment that the servant almost attempts to wave David off. David have a, has a servant here who begins to um, see uh, what's taking place, and is not really in a position to say too much about it, so he's coy in his approach, as people in this situation tend to be. Verse 3, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Now, this is how my youth pastor growing up tried to scare me into proper dating, all right? Be careful dating her. She's the daughter of somebody, right? Or At the very beginning, what he would say is this. He would start off with, be careful. Um, She's going to be somebody else's uh, wife someday. So like, be careful. And when that didn't work, then it was was the transition to, do you know who her dad is? Basically, is how this worked, right? Don't you know that she's the daughter of somebody that somebody drives a truck and that truck has a gun rack and that gun rack (laughs) has things on it, all right? So be very, very careful how you do this. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And when he brings this name in, Uriah the Hittite, this would be somebody that they both knew well, an honorable and brave person who's risked his life on the battlefield, in fact, is in the camp right now, sleeping in the mud, trying to exercise out a campaign of which you're not on, fighting your battles for you, and has a track record of doing so. He's, this servant is trying to, I think in this moment, draw him away, provide him with an excuse to try and gently, without overtly saying, because he's really not in a position to say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. He's the king. I mean, what do I have to say to that? So instead, I'll try and draw an attention to who she's a daughter of and who she's married to and hopefully kind of spin the wheels into motion or at least create this awkward scenario where you know that I know that you know that, you know, all this kind of things happening. There's strategy in play here. And yet what we know in life is that powerful people have a very difficult time listening to payroll people, don't they? I'll say that again for those of you who are in power. Powerful people have a really hard time listening to payroll people. So David, verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her and she begins, she comes to the king because what she, could she say in this moment, right? What could, what could he say? What could she say? All of these, uh, these things transpire. You can read it for yourself. The news comes, eventually she's pregnant. There's no hiding this. Um, she goes, she comes, she spends the night. She spends some time. It doesn't say how much longer. He eventually sends her home. She sends a message back, I'm with child. Um, and it's clear that it's not uh, from my husband because he's off at war and has been for a while. And there's no, there's no way to cover this up that there's been some sort of an infidelity in play. What do you want me to do? Or how do I move on this? So he powers up like we do when we're trying to build, when we are obsessed and, and convinced of our own autonomy, he powers himself up uh, and tries to control the outcomes. This is how we operate. When we are so desperate to live an autonomous life, when, when that becomes our priority, when things happen, oftentimes that are consequences of our decisions, our poor, dumb decisions, because we have operate, are operating from a limited perspective, then we power up, and we control outcomes. We do our best to kind of control things. I wanna make sure that this happens in this way. So what he does is he sends word. He brings Uriah the husband home from the battlefront uh, and he, he, he uh, coverts it as like this, hey, tell me about what's going on in the war. Anybody could have done this, but I specifically asked Uriah, come tell me what the status is. How's everything going? Okay, great. Sounds good. Okay, perfect. Why don't you go home, and then we'll send you back on the battlefield tomorrow. Instead of going home, though, Uriah sleep, says he sleeps on the doorframe of the king's castle, like he doesn't leave the property, even though his wife is probably a matter of meters, feet, I don't know, from the house. If obviously, if David can see her bathing, she's not that far away. He comes in from the battlefield and ref- Refuses to go home. He just decides to stay. And when word comes to David the next morning, hey, Uriah didn't go home, just so you know. I think one of the servants probably is seeing, again, why would that information be important? Because the servants know exactly what happened. Because the servant tried to take him away from something, right? And be like, hey, she's the wife of the husband of whatever, or the wife, uh, whatever. Um, In those moments, the word comes to him, just so you know, your plan's not working as you thought it would. I know you're trying to control the outcomes, but it's not happening the way that you wanted to. When questioned about it in verse 11 or verse 10, David says, haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? His response, Uriah's response, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And in this moment, he reveals himself as somebody who's living what we would call an integrous life, right? Like everything is integrated properly. He understands I'm not really in a position to do that would be sort of selfish in this way. I recognize I would not ask of my men to do something I'm not willing to do myself. I'm going to do this, even though probably I have every right, and nobody would blame him for going home to his wife. After all, it was right next door. You've served so much. You've had this track record. All of these things of I deserve, I deserve, I have the rights to do this, or I have whatever is all in play in this. Nobody would judge him for this. But he made a decision and operated it with a high level of conviction based on what he believed for his allegiance to his brothers in arms, for his allegiance to his military authorities, to all of these. Listen, that kind of a person, that's the kind of person that you want to hire, right? If you're, if you're an, an employer, you want employees who make the right decision when nobody's watching, who doesn't preach something that they aren't willing to practice themselves. This is the kind of person you want your daughter to marry, Guys, this is the kind of person your wife wants you to be, right? This is, this is a high level of, of character. It speaks so much about his character in this way. David invites him, then David realizes, okay, that one didn't work. That's fine. I've got other options, why don't you stay another night? We'll send you back home tomorrow. I know I said send you back home today, but why not let's, let's, um, let's reward you a little bit. Let's eat and drink. He feeds him a, a nice meal. Um, and it says in there, he specifically he gets him drunk and then he thinks to himself, surely Uriah will do what I would do if I were him, right? Now that he's full, his belly's full and he's got a little wine flowing through him, there's going to be no question about what his next step is, which is to go home and sleep with his wife. And then my problems are gone. Then... When she has the baby, and the news comes that she 's pregnant, or you know all of these can, things can be like, well, it must have been that one night I came home and had too much wine, right we've all been there anyways, um, Samuel second Samuel 11:13 says this, but in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master 's servants, and he still did not go home. I added still, but I think that's kind of a message, like a, the, the point of what this is going he still did not go home. Even in that inebriated state, he found himself living with this conviction, this isn't what I'm supposed to be. Like I'm, and it wasn't, it wouldn't have, again, it wouldn't have been bad for him to do that. It just is a higher level of character for him to be like, I don't See myself needing that right now. I don't see that sort of companionship. I don't see that sort of blessing for me. I'm, I'm I I find I'm living on two higher ideals than maybe anybody else would do. And David's like, that's not what I would do. I know, but that's I don't base my life on what you do. And here's a reminder for us, right, moving forward, that we write the story of our lives one decision at a time. And sure, some are bigger than others, but this is just a gentle reminder for us. Somebody who's living with this sort of conviction. This kind, of, this kind of ideals, these kind of things, these kind of higher level. I, it's fine for all of you. I'm not, and he's not trying to judge anybody in the way that he lives. Some of the, the, the people I respect the most are people with high levels of standards who don't try and legislate it on anybody else. It's not for you. It's fine. It's just for me. I need to do this. This is my kind of standards of living. And, I, and honestly, I don't hold it within like a secretly I'm judging you or secretly I'm, I'm, I'm wishing this or, you know, my daughter's not going to date you, but it's fine. You do you. It's just somebody who lives with this high level of conviction because of his integrity. Anyways, David realizes that he has been outmaneuvered by somebody who didn't even realize he was outmaneuvering anybody. David's like, ah, you sly dog. It's like a chess match. David thinks it's a chess match, and Uriah is just living his life with conviction. David's like, I'll get you someday, right? I'm I'm being outmaneuvered by somebody who doesn't even realize he's playing a game. In the morning, verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And it would be sealed with the king's seal so that Uriah would not be able to open it, obviously, uh, until Job got the thing. Uh, in it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. To which I'm sure Uriah is standing there saying, here's a letter from King David. and he, Joab, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, opens it in the presence of Uriah, of Uriah. Maybe not, but opens it and thinks to himself, man, I don't know what you did back at the palace. And I don't know what the conversation was like, but, but it, must, it must have been bad. It does not look good for you, right? uh second samuel uh th- then what happens after that is uh that's exactly what takes place um uh, Joab orders the men to attack a certain spot. Pulls back his men, leaves Uriah out to hang. Uh, Uriah in, ends up being killed. Uriah, uh, Joab loses many men in this process. Sends a messenger back to David. Unfortunately, we lost a lot of men in this process. Um, and just to be clear, Uriah was one of them. Knowing that that's what the king wanted to hear in the first place. He's also couching a, a little bit of like, I had, some, I sustained some losses, but don't worry, I got what you wanted to get done. So don't punish me for losing men or with it in this way. Joe, uh, David acts as if he's um, sad about all of this. He puts on this mourning face. In verse 27, it says this, that the, after the time of mourning was over, oh, and, and she found out, obviously Bathsheba finds out her husband has died. She's probably piecing together that it's not an accident. Maybe, maybe happenstance, but for sure, she's probably going, I just think that there was some, probably some foul play at, at hand or whatever. But after the time of mourning was over, David brought her back to, ha- back to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so ends a very dark chapter in the life of David. Actually, it doesn't really even end there, um, because what we see is David opting for the externally honorable move, which is to marry the deceased man's wife. Don't worry, man. I'll marry her, and I'll take care of your family in your stead. I'm going to do the honorable thing and add her to my litany of wives in this way. And I think in that moment, he's still, again, even trying to control these outcomes of, oh, how honorable for David to do this for a man he loves so much. And really the entire time, David is just, again, controlling outcomes, controlling outcomes, controlling outcomes. I can do this. I can figure this out. I got this. I'm fine. I don't need anybody's help. I know what I'm doing. Deception, 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 self-deception, 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 doing what he thought was right in his own mind, attempting to live in an autonomous way of self-governing in those ways, permanently undermining his credibility and his legacy. And externally, I know it looked good from the outside. Internally, I've watched enough Downton Abbey to know that there are no secrets in those types of households, right? Information is currency. And when you've got servants and, and, and people working for you in, those, in, in that way, and, and th- that, that close to the situation... There's no question that everybody in that household knew what was going on. David thinks, I got away with this, nobody knows. I promise you. I promise you that people knew, Because people know. Your boss has done some pretty ugly things. People that you know have worked for. Somewhere in the organization, they've done some pretty, pretty shady deals. They think they've gotten away with it. You... And your peer employees know that that's not entirely true. If that word ever got out, if that was ever in the Herald, if it was ever even known to other people in the company or the right people in the company or the people above them, it would not be good news for them. But who are you? I'm not in a position to say anything. I'm not in a position to point fingers. I just just head down, collect the paycheck, baby. That's my game. But we've seen this from people attempting, powerful people who refuse to listen to payroll people, attempt to control the outcomes by doing things that they think are the right things to do. In the meantime, they've lost their moral authority with you, right? You might not put words to it, but you don't respect them anymore. They begin to lose other arenas of their life, right? And this is what happens to David. He's lost all moral authority with the people who are are closest uh, around him. He's losing his legacy. He permanently undermines his moral authority with his children. His moral failure did not cost him his crown, but it did cost him his family and all of the things that he cared about. And he paid for that for the rest of his life. The baby, which um, Bathsheba conceives of, um, dies um, and uh, afterwards, then, an, an another child comes that child, his name is Amnon would go on to rape his half sister and David does nothing as a result of this he 's very sad and angry, but does nothing uh, so then Absalom comes, kills Amnon, brings this party, you know hosts this party, kills his older brother, uh, and then has to leave because he 's so afraid that his dad 's going to do something to him. He eventually rises up and, and recognizes like my dad 's shady, like I know what i did isn 't great, but like Who's my dad to be able to point the finger at me? Stages a coup on his dad. This all takes place in 2 Sam. You can read it for your own deal. David is forced to leave until Joab, thinking what he's doing is right, goes and kills Absalom. So now David's down two sons. His legacy's in question. It's a big, giant mess in this way. I mean, the story goes on, but it's not great. From here on out, it's pretty downward. He attempted to control some outcomes, and then the outcomes begin to get outside of his control. He maintained the crown, but everything he cared for and cared about faded away. And there's a really important part to the beginning of the story that I left out that I think would make an excellent book title or movie title someday. And it shows up at the very first verse. I started this text with cha- you know chapter 11 verse 2, but here's what chapter 11 verse 1 says. In the spring, at the time when kings typically go off to war. Springtime. This is when wars were generally fought. Not just ancient wars. I'm talking like World War II. One of the pitfalls of Hitler was that he tried to invade Russia during the winter, and that's just like, you're asking for a bummer. In the spring, typically, when the ground begins to harden a little bit more, when there's a little bit, you're not going to die from hypothermia. After you've been able to kind of plant some seeds into the ground and ensure a crop for the fall when you come back from doing your war business, this is when, pe- when wars would most often take place. Late spring, early summer. That was war season. In that season, when kings typically go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. David sent Joab out with all the king's men and the whole Israel army, but David remained in Jerusalem. And then comes the question, well, why did he remain in Jerusalem? Probably because he thought, I'm the king. Why do I need to be risking my life? Even though he had done that for many times, that was just why he had the track record. But I'm kind of entitled but I probably have other people around me saying, you should, you should just sit this one out. Why don't you just let us handle the business for you and you stay at home and enjoy and relax and whatever. Everybody's telling me I should take a break and I sort of deserve it. And in that moment, David got into trouble when he isolated himself from the community of men to whom he was most accessible. The people who could speak into him and his life who had access to him were now gone. The people he needed in his life, his right-hand man like Joab, or just other all of these mighty men, these fighting men who respected him in this way, were now gone. And what he's left with is a bunch of people who are only on the payroll, who need something from him, right? If, if we say anything negative towards you, it's not gonna come out good for us. So he surrounded himself with a bunch of yes men in this way. He was surrounded by people, but they're all telling him what he wants to hear. You shouldn't go. You'll be fine. Stay here. I'm, not, I'm, I'm neglecting my duties. I'm neglecting what I'm supposed to be doing, and it's okay. Look it. The council of the people around me are saying the things that I want to hear. I've been reading a, uh, a book recently that I've gotten into uh, by a guy named Albert Speer. He was, a, uh, he was the right-hand man, the chief architect for Adolf Hitler during World War II. Um, He was a highly respected, came from a generational, long generational line of architecture, and um, was a part of helping Hitler think through recreating Berlin as like the new Paris. Hitler had never been to Paris, but everybody had talked about like the architecture and the world history and power involved in, in that, and the image and all of that, and he wanted Berlin to be that. And so he knew he wanted an architect in place to be able to say, make me a city that people want to come to. Make me a city that will exude power and culture and all of the things involved in that. Kind of weird to make an architect your number two, but eventually it would go on. Um, later on in the war, as Hitler began to kind of almost lose his sanity and his mental health, um, many people would say that Albert Speer was the reason that this thing kept going. Um, was largely in part not due to Hitler because he's kind of s- struggling through some mental health stuff. It would be Albert Speer made the decisions to kind of, and, and by his own tokens, he uh, would be convicted uh, in the Nuremberg trials post World War II. He would be con- uh, sentenced to 20 years in a, in a military prison in Germany or just outside. Uh, and in this, he wrote his memoirs. It's a, a book called Inside the Third Reich, uh, Albert Speer. And he highlights how he went from a smart academic with, you know, upper class, upper middle class family background to meeting a person named Adolf Hitler and then eventually engaging in all of these things, sort of kind of unaware maybe of some of the destructive nature of the the Third Reich, Um, but or maybe, you know, memoirs are always tough because it's going to be their own perspective and they can kind of create their own story and their own narratives for what they, where they were wrong and where they weren't kind of wrong. So you always have to take them with a grain of salt. But anyways, I say all that because uh in one of the earlier chapters, he begins to describe a scenario surrounding Hitler and how he got to because we we look at this story and we see the 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 all the terrible decisions that were made and the culture that was created, and we think how 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 could somebody be that evil? how could people go along with this? how could they make some of these things happen? And he describes a little bit. About what happens to people in power and who they surround themselves with, that I think relates a lot to the story of David. Here's, here's what he says in chapter seven, I think. There's a special trap for every holder of power, whether the director of a company, the head of the state, or the ruler of a dictatorship. His favor is so desirable to his subordinates that they will sue for it by every means possible. They so desperately want to be liked by somebody that they'll never do anything negative so that they're pushed on the outside of it, right? Servility becomes endemic among his entourage who compete among themselves in their show of devotion. So-and-so's willing to go this far. I'm willing to go this far. This, in turn, exercise a sway upon the ruler. He becomes corrupted in his turn. He's watching these other people corrupt themselves for the sake of allegiance to him, and in a sense... Doing something to him. We said last week that dehumanization, what's the problem is if we listen to ourselves, eventually we dehumanize others. We step on them to get what we want. And in a process, it dehumanizes us. That's exactly what's taking place. Next slide. To the key to the equality of the man in power is how he reacts to this situation. I have observed a number of industrialists and military men who know how to fend off this danger. Only a few individuals among those around Hitler withstood the temptation to sycophony which is basically all the voices um, saying the same thing, saying the things that we want to hear. I've only seen a few people resist the temptation to surround themselves with a bunch of yes men who tell them exactly what they want to hear. Hitler himself put up no visible resistance to the evolution of a court. And that's, that's the big thing. He put up no visible resistance to the evolution of a court. Eventually... It was a bunch of people telling Hitler what he wanted to hear. And the takeaway from something like this is to resist the temptation for us of a court of people who only tell you what you want to hear. So when when I say at the very beginning, hey, be careful in trusting yourself because our heart is deceitful amongst all things, right? Who can trust it? Okay, well, then I'll trust the people around me. Well, that's really good. Generally, that's a really great way of doing life, but be careful because we have a tendency to surround ourselves with people who only tell us what we want to hear. Give people who do not work for you or need anything from you access to you. If your people around you are people who work for you or need things from you, and they're just trying to get you to like them or do things for them, their advice should be taken with a grain of salt. You are not created for autonomy. You're created for community. And community is surrounding myself with people in my life. Do I have people in my life who don't need anything from me? Right? Who are not trying to earn my respect or get something from me in terms of if, if, I, if they like me long enough, I can promote them or pay them more or do anything in, in this way. Do I have that kind of a community? Do I have those kind of people in my life? Because yes, you should definitely listen to the people around you, but make sure it's those people. Make sure it's not the people who are just telling you again what you want to hear, because in your mind, you'll delude yourself into thinking these people are independent. They just care about my well-being. Maybe, but probably not. They really don't care about your eventual destruction or your loss of moral authority with your kids or your family or anything that you care about. It's all about what's next for them. So just be careful, like in, in this, so what do I do? How do I operate with this? What's, what's my next right step? Listen to your heart a little bit, but be careful. Listen to others, but be careful. And perhaps, perhaps there's one more thing, one more final step, a third often unused or unrelied upon option. And that's our topic for next week for part three. And I hope that you can come join us for the finale.